now, pay attention, please. Windscreen bulletproof. That's on the side and the rear windows. Revolving number plates, naturally. Valid all countries. Here's a nice little transmitting device called a Homer. You prime it by pressing that back like this. You see? The smaller model is now standard field issue to be fitted into the heel of your shoe. Its larger brother is magnetic. Right. To be concealed in the car you're trailing while you keep out of sight. Reception on the dashboard here. Audio-visual, range 150 miles. Ingenious and useful, too. Allow a man to stop off for a quick one en route. It has not been perfected out of years of patient research entirely for that purpose, 007. And incidentally, we'd appreciate its return, along with all your other equipment. Intact for once when you return from the field. Oh, you'd be surprised the amount of wear and tear that goes on out there in the field. Anything else? Well, I won't keep her for more than an hour or so, if you give me your undivided attention. We've installed some rather interesting modifications. You see this arm here? Now, open the top, and inside are your defense mechanism controls. Smoke screen, oil slick, rear bulletproof screen, and left and right front wing machine guns. Now, this one I'm particularly keen about. You see the gear lever here? Now, if you take the top off, you'll find a little red button. Whatever you do, don't touch it. No, why not? Because you'll release this section of the roof and engage and fire the passenger ejector seat. Ejector seat? You're joking. I never joke about my work, 007. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the James Bond Complex, the show where we discuss everything James Bond from Fleming to film and everything in between. My name is Emery and I'm the host today for this special episode of the show. We're going to be talking about James Bond's DB5 and more specifically the recent book that came out from Hero Collector and I'm joined by the book's author, Mr. Will Lawrence. How are you, Will? Hey Emery, how you doing, man? Thanks for having us. Absolutely, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Um, the book is um, it has just come out. Um, I know that our co-host Edgar has just gotten himself a physical copy, and mine's on the way. But I've got an advanced copy of the PDF, and it is just an incredible book. It is so well detailed. How did all this come about? Well, um, obviously, the DB Five has a rich history, but it has a particularly prominent role in the new film, in No Time to Die. So. While Eon thought often about maybe getting a book out to chart the car's history, this seemed a good time to do it. Um, yeah, th th there's been a, a couple of books that with some great predecessors, but there hadn't really been any decent book that covered the entire history from way back when until now. You know, the, the others have sort of tailed off when they were published and not been republished. Uh, the most famous car in the world by David Worrell is one of them. It's a great book, but of course it only runs so many years. So we wanted to, uh, yeah, get the complete package and as No Time to Die is big on the car, this was the right time to do it. Right, and so how long have you been involved with the project? Because I mean, the No Time to Die was, you know, filmed and ready to go in 2019, yeah. but then so many delays. So how long have you been on the project? Well, we, we wrote the book for the initial release. So we wrote it, me and Simon Hugo, the co-author, 
we finished it what over 18 months ago but uh it took us a good while to do it and uh yeah I, having that gap in between means i keep getting to do other things that relate to the car which is always a pleasure Henry. and, and how much how much access did you get to to eon and to to aston martin then yeah quite a lot i work closely i got the gigs i work closely with eon anyway i'm a film journalist by trade okay but i um I used to be a motoring journalist as well back in my early youth. So when Eon found that out years ago, they asked me to do some work on some car related stuff. So I've been working with Eon for ages and they obviously, they are, they own, they have the massive archive with all the fantastic artwork in. And cause I work a lot with Eon, I did a lot of their press material for the new film, which meant I got to go to set all the various locations, ah. including Matera in Italy where all the DB5 stuff is filmed, and that is the that's the pre-title sequence before the. Oh, no, uh, don't spoil too much for me. Okay. <laughs> no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, it's just it's in the pre-title sequence, right? Which is, um, and then it goes into the film after that. So that whole section with the car is crammed into this awesome start to the film. And yeah, so I was out in Matera for quite a long time, and they had eight different aston martin db5s there for us to uh, poke around it i didn't get to drive them around the streets of matera unfortunately but uh yeah it was still good to see them all in action it's an amazing location to have to have a car chase and so then you you got to talk with uh, chris corbold quite uh, quite often and quite closely yeah yeah i know chris quite well he knows loads about these cars and aston were on set as well because they built they built a number of um trick cars as you want to call them you know specific stunt cars and various various different guises and they were there as well and yeah they gave us a lot of time because um they're the experts we're just the uh the intermediaries Emery. so so basically these aren't these the cars that, that we see or the stunt cars these are built by aston as well they're not just you know bought and then you know put on a on a on a roll cage chassis or on a on a on a steel chassis these are actual acid martins that that aston has built and, and provided for you or for yeah, for eon yeah, for, yeah. <laughs> we'd eon, love to each have one but you know <laughs> that would be the dream yeah eon uh eon do have their own car and that is the car that they try and use most often when the car is driving obviously that is just a classic aston martin db5 that does most of the shots but obviously they needed uh well, they needed a modified car to have all the new modifications in it. You need to have a car which you can fix a pod on the roof. Right. So the stunt driver, you know, sits on the roof of the car in the pod, driving the car so the actor and actress can be inside the car being filmed while it's doing its crazy manoeuvres. And you need a backup car. So, yeah, they made they made eight cars for the film. But, yeah, uh, other aspects. Eon's own Aston was there, and that is the car that gets the most screen time. If that all makes sense. So, so that the hero car is was one of the originals from from Goldfinger in '64. Then this is still the car that they've been using all these years, or no, is this a new no, one? It's a newer. It's still an old car, obviously, because they were only made for a certain amount of time. But no, it's not the original car. Amazing, the original car, as I'm sure you might know, Emery. It was uh, it was fitted out with all that amazing equipment for Goldfinger when they gave it back to Aston. Uh, at the end of filming, <laughs> Aston stripped all the modifications out, put it back as a normal car and sold it as a regular DB5. Oh, which they is heartbreaking. Quite, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine that in this day and age? 
Oh no, I see them popping up from other films. I mean, there's uh, there's Fast and the Furious cars that come up, and they're 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 still original. Or the uh, the 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 French series Taxi, they're still original stunt cars that come up that you can't return those cars to the manufacturer and then expect them to just strip them and sell them. These are collectors' items. Yeah, well, back in the day, see, I mean, to begin with, it when when Eon approached Aston Martin at the very start for Goldfinger. Aston weren't particularly up for it. You know, they, um, right. Well, the Bond franchise was quite new when they'd lent out cars before for promotional purposes. They come back with dings and dents. And so Eon had to work quite hard to get the car. And when they did all the stuff, yeah, he, uh, Aston figured it'd be more valuable to have it as a road car. I mean, there's some, <laughs> there's some viability in that. I mean, they're very valuable cars, but yeah. Had that original car being kept with all those bits on, that would be worth that would be worth quite a bit, buddy. And I know that one of the uh, one of those cars actually ended up in uh, in Vancouver, and there's a chap out here who's uh, actually building replicas based on that. Um, it, it's such a, uh, an iconic car. You mentioned it before. It's it's one of the greatest movie cars in history. Why do you think that is? That that it's still after only two appearances in the '60s, it basically disappears until 1995's Goldeneye. What helped keep it in our mind's eye all that time yeah there's, that's a really great question i think there's a few a few potential answers to it i think it has such an effect has such an impact in goldfinger and, it, and it, its impact comes in so many subtle ways it's not just uh the modifications that you see when it's battling it's like the introduction to the car where bond goes to q branch and q gives him the tour that in itself is a really iconic moment um, you know, it sets the it sets the uh, relationship between Q and Bond. You know, eject a, eject a seat. You're joking, says Sean Connery. Yeah, you know, I never joke about my work. It's a it's a classic moment. So every every time it appears in the film, either in action or any other part, they're really really iconic moments. And like you say, it only appears again very briefly in the next film, in uh, in Thunderball. But at that time. It was also the time of what well, toy manufacturers were first making their big, big forays into really good, decent cars. And that early Corgi Aston Martin was like the best selling toy for certainly for that year and maybe for subsequent years. So it sort of found its way into the childhoods of all these kids that liked films. And of course, they grow up with it. Right. And they carry that with them. And there's other things about it. I mean, just the look of the car, it's so. It's so beautiful, so sleek, mm. so yeah. It's I've got really the Hot Wheels and I've got the I've got the Lego and yeah. uh, I saw the Playmobil one come out and I'm like, well, how can I keep this away from the kids? <laughs> yeah, my brother had one and I'll tell you what, he was a lot older than me and I wasn't allowed to play with it because yeah, I'd be banging it into the walls. <laughs> he wouldn't allow it, but there's more to it. I mean, because the car itself, as I say, it looks great. And I was even thinking about it. Obviously, you've seen the film Cars. When Pixar anthropomorphizes a car, right. it's, it's the eyes and the grill. And if you look at the DB5 with its headlamps and grill, it's a really nice face. Do you see what I mean? Right, yeah. Great-looking car. And also, the last thing about it is it's, no matter what other car Bond has, this, this is like the, the mirror image of him. You know, it's sleek. It's really attractive and cool, seemingly powerful, but seemingly not that deadly. But click of a switch, it's lethal. So it's sort of a, a mirror image of Bond himself, if that makes sense. I think all those things driving together 
to make it, yeah, what it is. Because like you say, there was a long period where it didn't feature in the Bond. And even though lots of us love the Lotus, uh, the DB5 always wins. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. But there's, you know, there were other cards that were just not as iconic. And I'm kind of glad that in No Time to Die, we see the uh, the V8 Vantage come back. Yeah. Um, and there's the new DBS is there. Um, there's the Valkyrie that's there as well that are just, I mean, the incredible new technological cars. And one of the questions that um, we had here internally was, well, how how does Eon pull it off to show us the DB5 is still this competitive sports car in, especially in GoldenEye, when he's racing against a brand new F355 Ferrari? Um, how does that iconography of, of the DB5, how do they pull it off that the DB5 just looks fantastic and everything it does? Well, it's down to the car. I mean, if you think about it, what one what his first appearance uh, when it's battling, it's obviously it's battling Tilly Marston's Ford Mustang. And of course, the Mustang has gone on to become one of the most iconic cars, certainly the most iconic American car, perhaps. Right. And yet it's battling the Ferrari, like you say, with Zena on top. And yeah, I mean, it, it looks great next to any other car. And I don't know. I mean, a lot of that's down to the beauty, the beauty of the car. And obviously great stunt drivers and, and things like that but yeah i don't yeah i wouldn't, well, swap, wouldn't swap the db5 for the ferrari myself if i had a choice of either one <laughs> no honestly i wouldn't either and even in, in golden i speaking of it they, they had the the z3 and i <laughs> don't see why the z3 was there i would have just continued with the aston in my opinion but i i, I kind of understand during that time they had other cars and i do like that in your book you, you go there there's the there's not just the the time where the DB5 was on screen. There was the how they got it to Goldfinger, and I think that was not necessarily a well-known story, but it was already well-documented. There was already always um, a sense of the the kind of the anecdotal evidence of that. But you went really into detail about the, the kind of the in-between period of between Thunderball and all the press tours and then its reappearance in GoldenEye, what happened to the original cars and all that. Um, did you get a lot of access with, with the Eon archives for that as well? Yeah, Eon, Eon have a wonderful archivist, uh, Meg Simmons. We worked a lot with her. And yeah, it, it's one of the great things about doing something like this, digging around in, in the archive and finding all those original call sheets and seeing when it was used and finding the original letters written back and forth between Aston and Eon. Yeah, get, getting all that information from Eon is uh, it's invaluable. I mean, anyone can write a book like this but without eon support because obviously the materials they have the artwork they have the knowledge and the connections they have the aston martin historian the access to him you know we had, we had a really great uh well of resources emily it makes it it makes it a lot easier and a, a lot more fun <laughs> and then further to that after we we get the the kind of the backstory of the db5 we we get all the kind of the interior shots and all the, yeah. the 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 extra work that was done to the vehicle stuff that we kind of already aware of but they're also you go into detail about all the other Aston Martins because he was given more modern Aston Martins in the films um mentioned it earlier living uh, the living daylights he got the the 87 v8 vantage it was yeah. heavily gadgeted um the db uh, sorry not the the well the, the vanquish that he gets in in die another day also heavily modified and heavily uh, gadgeted there, but it still comes back to the, to the DB5. Do you think that there one day there will be a more modern Aston Martin that'll, uh, that'll replace it or a more modern British car, or is it always going to come back to the DB5? I think given Bond's history, the DB5 
that would always be the car. But you're right, those other cars, they're really fantastic. That V8 from the Living Daylights, I love that car. I mean, oh yeah, I'm, I'm 49 years old. I grew up, you know, late 70s, early 80s. It was the era, you know, this of the the shorter rear end, the long, the long bonnet, and I absolutely love how that V8 looks. And yeah, to, well, I hope we're not giving a spoiler away, but it does make a brief appearance in the new film. It looks spot on. And they're also very clever, I think, because they brought in the DBS for Daniel, well, there's DBS in on a Majesty's Secret Service. There's some older DBSs, but yeah. the new DBS they bought in for the Daniel Craig films. And that's a really clever switch because it's a really aggressive car. If you think of what a lot of Astons look like, they're quite delicate. They're quite feline, almost quite cat-like. Mm -hmm. And yeah, when Daniel Craig comes powering in with his, obviously he does drive the DB5 as well, as we know, but his main issued motor is that DBS and it's big and it's hunky and it's dark and it's powerful. That's a really clever thing because that really suits the character. Do you know what I mean? So I think we'll right. always have other Astons knocking around, but the DB5 will always, will always be the shining light, I should imagine. Like I said, they tried Perfect. to use the Valkyrie concept, concept car in the new film. Right. It was a bit too modern. It looked a bit too uh, futuristic. So you sort of see it in a test environment. But yeah, it, it does look, it looks pretty cool. <laughs> because there was there was photos of that car I in Norway. And I'm assuming that uh, a little bit of a spoiler that we, we don't see it more than just in the in the testing. Um, and I, I personally don't like that car. I prefer the the, the DBS uh, Sporogera that's, that's in the film. And um, the Zagato versions of a lot of the, the Aston Martins. Do you think that, that the relationship, even if the DB5 stays, do you think that they'll go eventually towards another manufacturer for another gadgeted car? Or do you think the, the Aston relationship is so solid now in the last 15 years that it'll probably still stay Aston? I can only speculate, everybody should imagine they're so synonymous and they're so important. Well, not so important to each other. I mean, it, James Bond has done loads of great films that Aston Martin, Aston Martin survives without James Bond, but there's no doubt they benefit from the relationship. And I certainly, it does Aston Martin no harm being, you know, a, well, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> car, car manufacturers are owned by all sorts of bigger companies, but it is still theoretically a British tailor-made uh, bespoke car manufacturer. And it, it, fit, it, it sort of fits Bond's profile. So, Sure, it was fun to see him drive the BMWs and whatever, but there's something right about having a classic British spy in a classic British car. Yeah. Right, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, just kind of in closing and before we, we wrap all this up, more into the James Bond part of it, what is your favorite James Bond moment in the entire series? I mean, you say you're, you're Fortnite, you grew up in the in the 70s and 80s. I'm about 10 years younger than you. And so I grew up with, well, actually I did grow up with Goldfinger because that was kind of a, a little obsession of mine of renting it at the at the video store every week. And I didn't really grow have a Bond until GoldenEye. So yeah, some Martin's there anyway. But for you, what was the, 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 the James Bond moment for you growing up? Oh, right. Well, growing up, it would definitely be, uh, it's definitely be the Lotus. The Lotus going underwater. That was the car that I was allowed to have a toy of. Right. And it, so and your it, brother got a DB5 and you got a Lotus Esprit. Okay. I got a Lotus Esprit. <laughs> and I, I still love that car. Again, it's a car of my era. So when it, when it rockets off the off the pier and dives underwater. And also, I know the, the way humours changed, but at the time when it, when the car rolled out the water and, you know, he throws a fish out the window and a guy pours his drink away. That was good humor at the time. But 
Yeah, if I can give another one, Emily, on a personal level, uh, yeah. the train sequences from Octopussy. When I was uh, literally 20 yards from where I'm sitting now, or 100 yards from where I'm sitting now, I was playing golf with my dad on a little miniature golf course when I was uh, nine years old. It's been 1982, and these people shouted at us, can you get out, can you move, move? And we're like, what, what? They're like, we're trying to shoot a film here, and they were shooting the Octopussy train sequence on the no. on the little steam rail, with a little steam railway near us. And literally, we were playing pitch and putt, this tiny little golf course. They're like, get out of the way, you're in shot. And we're like, I wonder what that is. And then we found out they were shooting. <laughs> we were nearly in shot of Octopussy. So because of that, I love the train sequence and Octopussy. <laughs> Did you give your name like right away to Eon? Uh, you know, when I'm old yeah. enough, I want to work with you guys. That's a, that's a really good story. See, it was fate, I mean, it was fate. So how long have you been working with Eon uh, just in general? You say you've been doing press with them, but how long have you, the official relationship between you and Eon, how long does that go uh, back? I joined, uh, well, I was a, a journalist and I joined, uh, there's a magazine in England called Empire. It's a big, right. big film magazine. I was the deputy editor and then I edited that. And that was in 2003. That's when I first got to know them. And yeah, so I went so you've been that. on with them for pretty much the entire Craig run. Yeah, basically, yeah. I was thinking this the other day, especially as the way things change and the way magazines are changing. Yeah, my the highlight of my print journalism career basically spanned Daniel Craig's Daniel Craig's Bond career. So I'll uh, I'll take that. <laughs> and you mentioned being an automotive journalist before that. You were with uh, which uh, which publication or, or who were you working with then? Uh, well, it was called Max Power. I'm not sure if you guys would know it, but it was a, it was a massive title over here. It was a it was for modified cars. Okay. So yeah, you know people, particularly a lot of Civics and Skylines, all those things. People buy them and rip them out and put the body kits on, and it was a bit of a a bit of a lads mag. So imagine Maxim or G or right. cheap GQ meets yeah Maxim probably Maxim meets a modified car mag. There were lots of girls and. I think the equivalent for us over over here would be Super Street. Yeah, I can hear what you're saying. Yeah, that was that was one of those things. I mean, where you wake up and you'd be happy to go to work. You know, what are you going to do today? Right. We're going to we're going to drive this skyline around the racetrack. <laughs> then we're going to do a photo shoot with this model, and then the day's over. <laughs> I was like, sweet. Seems pretty sweet. Yeah, I, absolutely. <laughs> I can only think that e Eon is a step up, but, you know, <laughs> if I was driving Skylines and hanging out with models all day, I don't think I would complain too much either. Are you a car man yourself as well as a car man? Oh, I am. I, I am. I, uh, well, not, not in, doesn't reflect the cars that I currently own, but no, I am <laughs> a, I'm an automotive enthusiast. I do like, I'm a gearhead. I, I like, uh, I like cars. I like, um, you know, I've, I'm a big follower of the original Top Gear. I don't know how it's gotten off to now, but I mean, with James May and Jeremy Clarkson and, uh, Classic program. Oh, I mean, it's 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 one of those great programs where they they don't take themselves seriously at all, but they'll give you really the honest opinion of a vehicle. Whereas a lot of other programs that you that we that we get, and a lot of other uh, magazines like Motor Trend and Road and Track are very serious. They're going to give you, you know, the consumer's version of the information what you want to hear. Whereas you know, Jeremy Clarkson will get into a car and he'll, you know, he'll either roast the car completely or he'll, you know he'll talk about how insanely good it is, but he'll, he'll give you the information in a much more easy to digest and humorous way. So I, I've always appreciated the way that they've done things compared to, you know, the traditional auto show where, you know, they give you, you know, the safety points and, you know, how many cup holders there are. And to be honest, like, I don't, to be very frank, I don't give a shit. I want to know how fast does it go? How does it handle? 
how good does it look? Uh, what do they do to get there? That's that's kind of my thing. Yeah, it's, it's a good level of irreverence. Hard word to say, but yeah, that's what, right. I like that. I have to say, they're quite rock and roll with it. <laughs> well, I mean, they did a review of a Tesla um, and, you know, they had so many problems and then Tesla sued them. And I said, well, you know, this is the car you gave us. Whereas another auto TV show or, or program would have probably taken the time to uh, just show the good sides of it. And they would just say, well, this car was absolute trash. We had so many issues with it. It, it overheated and all that. And that's, it's the truth. It's the truth in journalism where it's not presenting the vehicle as a consumer wants to see it to potentially buy it. It's not a commercial. It's, this is how it was. Or when they all three of them buy some crap box and drive through Africa. I mean, it's, it's just adventures like that in, in wrenching and motoring. And I'm a big fan of the website Jalopnik where, you know, it's, it's the same kind of thing, a free for all in, in automotive journalism, which is a little more interesting to me. Yeah. I'm with you, buddy. I'm with you. So kind of in conclusion, is there anything else that we should be expecting from you and Hero Collector in the future in terms of books? We've just done a, uh, a film by film guide. That's what we did in the, uh, in the downtime in between this film supposed to have been released. Hmm. <laughs> it a little released. short amount of downtime that you had there, Will. Yeah. Well, what are we going to do? Let's get another book out. So we've done a, uh, yeah, the, again, an official Eon product, the James Bond film guide. It's probably for a slightly younger audience. Uh, doesn't go heavily into a lot of the raucousness, but it goes through each film. Bit of making of the film, the story of the film, and then all the characters, how they play out in the film. It's like a like an encyclopedia, I suppose, encyclopedia of characters and stuff like that. That's that'll be out in about a month or so, I think. So just in time for Christmas. You know, you know how it works. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, you know what? Then we'll have to give ourselves a, 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 a schedule ourselves a nice little chat for that one as well, because it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Will, thank you very much for joining me today. No worries. Thank you very much, Emery. And uh, yeah, have a good one, man. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Intrepid Double Seven podcast here on the James Bond Complex. Please follow us on our social media accounts at the James Bond Complex and at 007 Intrepid on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Until then, thanks for listening.